Welcome to The Whole Marketer, where we look at the holistic skills, the technical skills, soft skills, leadership skills, and personal understanding that marketers of today need to grow the brands and businesses of tomorrow. We're here to ensure that marketers feel supported and empowered to have successful and fulfilling careers and lives as a whole. Hello, and welcome to The Whole Marketer podcast. Today's podcast is a holistic skill, as it's a key skill we need as marketers to adopt as we look to seek the all-important buy-in. And therefore, today, we're going to focus on gaining alignment by winning hearts and minds. Shortly, we will welcome today's guest, Ruth Saunders, onto the podcast. She is the author of Marketing in the Boardroom, Winning the Hearts and Minds of the Board. But before we welcome Ruth on, let me tell you why I believe gaining alignment is so important. As outlined in my book, If we want marketing to be able to lead the long-term commercial agenda of the business, that means we need to gain alignment and motivation from the wider business for the plans and strategies that we have developed, which hopefully you've done with a cross-functional team that allows you to have advocates as you start to roll this out across the business. Often when we need to face into the reality of actualizing these plans or strategy, key changes and challenges will occur and arise. And these need to be faced into, whether that's a restructure, additional investment, changes of strategic direction for the brand, upcoming external communications, acquisitions and mergers, or much, much more. Implementing change is not an easy task. It takes time and a lot of emotional energy, especially when we need to take the time to ensure that the wider organization and key stakeholders are aligned to these plans and feel motivated to come with you on the journey. Today's guest is Ruth Saunders. She has over 30 years of experience as a strategy consultant at McKenzie's & Co., a marketer at P&G, advertising planner at Saatchi & Saatchi, and market researcher at Mars. She focuses on helping clients to implement innovative customer marketing and brand strategies that deliver tangible business growth. She works across a range of B2C and B2B industries, including FMCG, financial services, telecommunications, chemicals, and leisure, on topics including customer growth, brand portfolio, brand positioning, and brand migration, where she focuses on developing new growth strategies for new brands, markets, and channels, turning around businesses and brands, optimizing customer and brand experiences, streamlining brand portfolios and architectures, and leading brand migrations. She is also a trainer, speaker and coach, as well as the author of two books, Marketing in the Boardroom, which I mentioned earlier, and Female Entrepreneurs, The Secrets of Their Success. Ruth, welcome to the Whole Marketer podcast. Thank you so much. So as always, we start with a big juicy question. And today's big juicy question is, what does winning hearts and minds mean to you? Thank you, Abby. Winning people's minds is convincing them with a rational reason to do something in the business. Winning their hearts is making them believe in it and want to do it. So hearts is that emotional reason. Your heads is that rational reason to do something in the business. So why do you believe this is such an important role for marketers? Marketers are essential to the future success of a business because they are the voice of the customer. If the customer's happy, the business will succeed. If the customer's not happy, the business will fail. So marketers are really important in understanding what customers really want, how the company is uniquely positioned to meet their needs, and what they need to put in place to make that happen. And then also importantly, they need to convince the people at the top table to invest in meeting customers' needs and delivering the product services and supporting processes that will make them happy. If marketers can't convince the top team to do that, then nothing will happen and customers will stay unhappy. 
the key word there for me is convince. I think most marketers listening to this are probably already convinced that the consumer and the customer should be the heart of all our decision making. You know, we need to make sure that voice is heard in every meeting and every forum and at the board level. But there are so many things that we need to convince them behind, whether that's long-term strategy, whether that's a big idea, whether that's investment. What do you see are the most common things that we are having to convince others within the organisation and stakeholders around? For me, the most important thing is for marketers to convince the organisation on how to better meet customer needs and how they can do that within their company context in a way that's better than any of the competitors. And so for me, it's really important that marketers understand the business context. What do the top team want right now? Are they in a high growth strategy mode? Are they in a business stability mode? Are they willing to take risks right now or are they feeling more risk averse? Understanding that context is really important to working out how to land what you you need to land. So for me, that's one of the big things is sitting down with your cross-functional peers and really understanding what the business is looking for right now. That's a great piece of advice, you know, really understanding that business context. And I always say, you know, really understanding that lead measure that the wider business is chasing and coupling that with what you are presenting and requesting or convincing them to part with investment-wise, yes, to meet the needs of the customer, but to also deliver that number, whatever that number may be. Totally agree, Abby. It's really important to understand what are the key metrics that the senior team are looking to deliver and how can your projects help them meet those metrics? So metrics is key. Commercial is key. Profit is key. But what advice would you give? And I know this is a really area of specialism for you, Ruth, in marketers that are looking to win the hearts and minds, not only of the wider business, but also the board. So for me, it's really important to engage people early on when you're still in problem solving mode. So the more that you can have conversations with cross-functional peers, with senior people about their view on whether this is an important issue and how they would solve it, the more you can create a good solution with them. So I'd say engage people early on, even if it's just for 10-minute chats or 30-minute chats, just to see where the lie of the land is and, and work out who is supportive, who's not supportive and why. And when doing that, it's really important to talk to people in plain English. Marketing is so full of jargon. And of course, you can't expect cross-functional peers to understand that jargon. So it's really important to say it as it is in clear English so that people get what you're trying to do and why. I also say that senior people tend to be quite time-starved. So get to the point quickly. And importantly, set the context as to why they should engage. What's the business reason why this is important? What is it going to deliver for the business that will help them deliver their goals? And then also importantly, what do you want? What are the key asks? What are you looking for their agreement on? Being very clear about those so that it becomes an actionable conversation really helps. And then the other piece of advice I was given by a board member was board members want to kick the tires of projects, of recommendations. And if they are engaged, they will ask questions. They will challenge to see if the proposal stacks up. So when you get questions, then embrace them. This is a good sign. Don't blag, don't get defensive, don't waffle, but listen to the question, pause to really understand it, answer it succinctly and check that you've answered the question they were asking. And if you don't know the answer, say you don't know and say when you're going to come back with the answer, what you're going to do to get the answer. 
So for me, it's about really respecting people's time, really getting them part of the problem solving so that they believe in it too, and helping them engage in a way that they understand the issue. So what I'm hearing is it's important that you understand their issue as well as the issues or challenges that you believe that you will be addressing through this piece of work or project or work stream, as well as understanding their own personal drive and challenges in order for you to be able to, I guess, guess that gain their buy-in, gain more traction because it's more emotive to them. Is that fair to say? I would frame it slightly differently. I would say you want to take your recommendation to them and see if it works within their world. So an IT person, you might be taking recommendation to them, which will cause digital chaos for them. And you need to understand that so you can find a way around it, a solution around it. So for me, it's about taking your recommendation to them and then letting them challenge it, problem solve with you and find a solution that's going to work in their world and also deliver what you need. Okay. About giving a clear recommendation about what you believe should be the course of action, allowing them to express their challenges, and then if needs be, reformulating to accommodate how you might overcome. Exactly. Finding a win-win solution that worked for both of you. Perfect. What do you think is the key element in that to win in their heart? So some issues can be more emotional in business and personally. And for me, it's when the decision is going to do something that impacts them personally. So a favorite one of mine is brand migration. If you migrate to one brand, you might be losing your power base. In the past, you had your own brand. It was separate. You had more autonomy. If you then go to a global brand, you may be moving to a more global structure, which may mean losing your power base. Another scenario I've seen is when a project was going to impact someone's bonus. It was very clear if if this project went through, they'd have to spend a lot of money and they wouldn't make the amount of revenue that they needed to. So, of course, they didn't support it. And so for me, it's really important recognizing those situations where you're into a more emotional conversation because any business case is not going to convince them to do it. What you need to do is try to find a way to get the project to work without causing them problems. So what I say to people, if the response is more emotional, then do spend time with those people early on to understand why, what the issues are, and to problem solve ways around it with them, to negotiate with them, to find that win-win solution. By taking them on that journey over a number of meetings, two, three meetings, you can together get to something that gets to where you need to be, but also doesn't cause them issues that will concern them. I love what you're saying around making sure that you engage people early on and actually even more so that you said it's around two to three conversations because I think there's a lot of pressure on, I'm just thinking back to when I used to have to align with the board around getting all of those people that you think, you know, would oppose the plan or whatever that may be and then aligning with them ahead of time and almost like the pressure to do that before presentation day or before board day. And I'm just thinking, actually, if you had more time, how much pressure it would take off you individually if you were having two to three conversations, maybe structuring them around what the challenge is or what you're looking for, then allowing them to come back with some bills and feedback and the same from you and so on. In your experience, what would you be recommending would be the structure of how you would approach those two to three meetings? 
So I found that three meetings work really well, be that working with local teams or be that working with senior stakeholders, if you are in an emotional situation. So the first meeting, I would take the proposal to them in a very loose form whilst you're still at problem solving stage and get them to respond to it. Are they supportive? Do they see any issues with it? If they see any issues, what are they? And are there possible ways around it that are easy to fix? Then I would let them go away and talk to their peers, understand it more, think about it more. And I'd do a second meeting where they can come back to the table and talk in more depth about their issues or come back with some solutions and together work through those and see where the remaining sticking points are. And then in the third meeting, I would be looking at sitting down with them and saying, right, this is what we're going to take to the Exco meeting or the board meeting. Are you comfortable with that? For me, in the first meeting, if you're doing a local country workshop where you're looking at migrating to a new brand, for example, the first meeting, the team are likely to get upset. They will say, go away. I don't want to engage with this. In the second meeting, they'll say, "Mm, you're back. That means somebody senior must be supporting this and therefore I need to engage. Between the second and the third meeting, they work out whether to stay on the train uh, and be part of the project or whether to get off the train and find another opportunity. And So in the third meeting, they turn it into what can I get out of this? How can I use this project to my advantage? And I've seen that model work many times. I love that model. I'm a massive advocate of, you know, with you, for you. And I think by taking it as not this solid idea of what you think we need to do to move forward, but here's the problem that I have and how I'm thinking about solving it, allowing them to be part of the problem solving is really powerful. Absolutely. Because then you can negotiate together to find something that really works. I've done that process with senior people who didn't want to engage with me. And they've then spent quite a bit of time with me and I've asked them why. And they said, because nobody ever problem solves with me, Ruth. They come here and make recommendations and they don't really want my point of view. They just want me to say yes. And it gets really dull. It's to have somebody actually come here and problem solve with me was really refreshing. Love that. And therefore more likely to be bought into the solution because they've been part of it. And also I like that you provide them time to reflect and digest in between. I think there is so much pressure put on senior leaders to come up with the immediate yes or no or the response or the answer in the meeting, in the meeting room. That's not how all of us make decisions. Some of us need the data. Some of us need to reflect. Some of us need to process. We will all have our own methodology. And I think acknowledging that by giving them time to reflect and come back, they will be able to process that fully and not feel as on the spot, maybe not as emotional or guttural or maybe even defensive in their response because they're not put on the spot. Yeah, I think 50% of people like to see something ahead of time and digest it. 50% of people like to think in the moment. I'm much more the latter, but certainly know quite a few people who are the former. By giving them time, it also gives them opportunities to go and speak to their peers to see if their peers feel the same way or whether they're a lone wolf. And that will then help them think through what the right solution might be. And that lone wolf thing is interesting because you mentioned earlier around, oh, look, she's back. Therefore, she must have some senior backing. How important is it to have that senior backing, to have that weight and traction behind the conversations you're having? If you're doing something which has emotional impact on people, it disadvantages them in some way personally. Mm. It is really important to have senior leadership and buy-in. It is very tough to make the case for things like brand migrations. And unless there's a real reason to need to do it that is supported by the senior people, you won't get very far. 
So having that senior buy-in and support is absolutely critical. That almost feels like the first step before you even think about any solution about how you might move forward. There's no point going there if you don't have senior support. You might want to make a recommendation to the senior team as a possible way forward. So, you know, we think we should move to one brand globally. But at that stage, the first step is getting the senior buy-in so that they then support it. Otherwise, it's a no-go. Understood. Another thing you said earlier was the likelihood of that in the first meeting, you know, you might get that pushback, you might get that go away, which made me think straight away around, you know, potentially as we get more emotionally connected to an idea ourselves, how personal that might feel and the level of resilience that we potentially need to have in order to bounce back after that initial maybe confronting conversation. And there will be lots of kind of challenging conversations, I'm sure, throughout the process, throughout those two to three meets. Whether you're emotional because you're connected to it, whether they're emotional because the impact it's going to have on them, as you say, giving that example around brand migration and the power base that they will use. What advice would you give in preparation and during and even after those difficult conversations? So there's a phrase which I love, which is to have a firm view loosely held. So it's really important when talking with people on this is the recommendation, this is the rationale, this is why I think we should be doing it. So it's, it's very clear and it's fact-based, but it's also important to recognize that there will be things going on in the company that you don't know about. There'll be other conversations going on that might impact something like this that you're not aware of. And so when having those conversations, it's really important to hold that view loosely. So if people are throwing in curveballs, it won't work because of this or won't work because of that. You can riff with it. You can negotiate with it. You can find a way through. I always say it's like water through rocks. You're trying to get the water through the rocks and you're not quite sure how it's going to twist through them. But your job is to try and get the water to find a way through the rocks so that you can find a solution that works. I suppose that can take quite a lot of energy, both in the problem solving to find the way through the rocks, but also to be persistent in making sure that that water does indeed flow through the rocks and doesn't get stuck behind a rock. So sometimes the water does get stuck behind a rock. Sometimes the timing is just not right. And Mm. you probably won't know why, but sometimes you just have to wait six months, even a year, even two years to get the timing to be right. One of the situations I've seen quite often is that when a new CEO comes in, they are willing to make braver, bolder decisions. So sometimes Sometimes it just needs to be a new CEO coming in and making mm. those versus the one that's on the way out that wants to keep it all very stable and secure. That is, I've seen that happen a couple of times with moving to one global brand. It's taken a new CEO to, to come in and, and make that bold move because it costs lots of money and isn't going to return in the short term. So for me, sometimes you have to recognize that the water is going to get stuck behind a rock and gracefully retreat until the timing is right. Yeah, timing is right. I suppose there's also those situations where the timing is now. And I'm thinking around brand investment, for example. And we know as marketers or majority of us know that we need to continue to invest, for example, during recessionary times. Yet not everybody understands that in the wider organisation and budget cuts may occur or there may be a need or an opportunity for increased investment. I'm just thinking about comms out loud here. Do you feel that the approach that we've discussed would work in all of those situations or is it a case that actually, to your point, you need to reflect on the time, need to reflect on what that personal challenge may be, reflect on how the business is doing and performing, kind of that lay of the land or something else you need to consider based on each problem that may arise? I think it's really important to understand the business context. So if you're getting blocked on spending money on brand, go and talk to finance. 
why? What's the overall mm. context that is making the company not want to invest right now? And how long is that likely to last for? I also think that as a marketer, you need to think in terms of if it was my money, would I invest it? If it was my money, would I spend it? And obviously, as an entrepreneur, there'll be times where you're feeling a little tight and a bit nervous about spending money. And so I think it's really important to think like that, even if you're in a big corporate. So there will be times when actually it is better not to hold the powder dry and, and hold off investing. So for me, it's about understanding that bigger context of is the timing good now to invest? And if so, how, in what way? Or is it actually better to hold off a bit for whatever reason and then do something great in six months time, three months time, whatever it might be, and really think like an entrepreneur around that investment piece? As you're talking then, so many of what you've just described and from earlier in the conversation plays to a lot of the skills outlined in The Whole Marketer. So resilience, yep. curiosity, why is this not working in the business context? Why do I think this might be occurring? What's happening within that person? Spending money as if it's your own, looking after it as if it was your own. Yep. I think acting responsibly is really important. For me, that's all around is spend it like it was your own money. I think at times the company is not in the, a good place to be spending a lot of money. And I think marketers sometimes need to understand that sufficient ways to go to market. What can they do that's clever that is going to punch in the market without having to spend a lot of money. So I think entrepreneurs tend to go to market quite cleverly. One of my favorite cases is confetti.co.uk, who built their wedding database business. They were the third to market, but they became number one with only £500,000 spend. One of the big things they did was they offered um, everybody who registered a chance to win £10,000 to pay for their wedding every month. So one person on their database won £10,000 to pay for their wedding each month. That so that was a hundred and twenty thousand pounds spend a year. That got over two thirds of the people who registered to register because they needed the money for the wedding. And so it's a very powerful way to have a huge impact. Within six months, with the five hundred thousand pounds spend, their database was larger than John Lewis's Engagee database, British Airways. It was bigger than Mossbros, any other Engagee database, it was it was bigger than. That's a great example. And, you know, acting responsibly and entrepreneurial with your spend and investment is two great lessons and skills that I also believe that marketers of today need to possess. And much more fun as well, because when you're having to think entrepreneurially, you're having to think more creatively. And in some ways, it's more mischievous. It's more naughty. You're trying to find clever ways to do things, which I love. I have another great example, actually, for confetti.co.uk. We worked out that engagees read Hello and OK magazine to see what the celebrities are doing for their weddings. And so we went to Hello magazine and we talked to them about this and we wanted to advertise in their magazine. And we worked through with them that we would have 10 one-page advertorials, all bespoke and all featured after the engagement announcement or wedding announcement of a celebrity couple. So I remember Catherine Zeta-Jones and Michael Douglas, they had their engagement spread. And then we had the page directly afterwards and went, congratulations, Michael and, and Catherine. And then we made a joke. And those 10 ads we got for £10,000 in total. And the impact was phenomenal because the ads were bespoke to each couple. Love that. It's almost a really great example of early personalization as well as from where we are today in that digital age. So really great example. And do you know what? Personally, I remember using confetti when I got married all those years Aww. ago. Aww. Bless you. Love confetti. So a lot of those skills that we talked about are really great 
both personal skills and soft skills, leadership skills, as well as technical skills. What have you learned about yourself or in that area of personal understanding do you think is important to know when going through the process of gaining alignment? For me, the biggest thing is recognising that if somebody's got an issue, there's a good reason why they've got an issue. So for me, it's about dropping my point of view and trying to see the world through their eyes. What is causing the issue? Why is it a block? How could we find a way around it? So it's respecting that if people have got an issue, there's a really good reason for it. And for me to put myself in their shoes and try and see a way around it, it is not for me to defend myself. So an element of not taking it personally, but thinking about what's driving them to feel like that with a degree of empathy and look at it subjectively with that viewpoint. Yeah. And asking them questions to try and see the world through their eyes and genuinely listening to what they're saying so that you can see the world through their eyes. And for me, that is a lot of fun. Love that. And it's a really great way of kind of remaining humble and curious throughout the whole process as well. Thinking about... Yeah, the business challenge as well as their own personal challenge and how you understand both and come up with solutions for both and thinking about them and their personal response to the situation. Yeah, and really recognising that you always only know a certain piece of the puzzle and there are other pieces that you don't know that you need to understand. Definitely. Those questions to understand are ever so powerful. So talking about personal experiences, I'd love to hear about your career highs and lows. So for me, it took me 14 years to find my thing. And in those 14 years, I didn't really feel like I fitted anywhere. I did my first five years of market research at Mars and Procter & Gamble. Then I went into marketing at Procter & Gamble. And then I went to Saatchi and was in advertising. And I either struggled with the politics or I got bored. I just didn't really felt I fit anywhere. And I was very lucky to get headhunted to McKinsey in my 14th year to be a branding and marketing generalist. And as soon as I arrived, I knew I'd found my thing. Combined problem solving with good maths and stats with psychology. And that's the three things I love more than anything. So for me, it was such a relief to find my thing. And also I am so pleased that I kept looking because I've now been working for over 35 years and I love my work. I really enjoy it. And if I'd stayed in an area where I wasn't truly happy, then work would be a grind. But actually it's a real pleasure. Really great example of following those crumbs of the things that you enjoy and making sure the things that you're passionate are involved in your role. I love that. And your career lows? So I think the low was going through those 14 years of of the wilderness, as I called it, where I just didn't seem to fit. I had headhunters writing me off as not ambitious, not knowing where to place me. And that was soul destroying when you're 26, 27, 28 years old. And then when I got to McKinsey, it made sense of my whole career. So the fact that I've done market research, marketing, advertising, and now could put it together into a strategic advisory package made sense of it. And I just felt like those 14 years have been worth it. And since that pivotal moment, when you got that role that you absolutely loved, tell us more about what you're doing today and about the books that you've written. Thank you so much. So I worked at McKinsey for four years and then I headed up Profits London office for three years. And then I started my own business in 2007. So that's 15 years ago. And I do this kind of strategic consultancy work in marketing and branding day in, day out. This is what I do each day. And in that time, I've worked with fantastic clients on great projects, some really meaty 
ones like Lloyd's HBOS integration. So which brands to keep and which brands to get rid of and how to pull Halifax and Lloyd's apart and some much smaller ones as well. And I get to do it from my own home in my style and to be Ruth rather than in a corporate organization, which is so lovely. And in that time, I've had the pleasure of writing two books. So my first one, Marketing in the Boardroom, Winning the Hearts and Minds of the Board, was really a dump of all the stuff in my head about how to engage senior people because I do that so much in my work. Mm-hmm. And then my second one, Female Entrepreneurs, The Secrets of Their Success, is kind of my other passion area around helping small businesses grow, helping them develop, helping them to go to market cost efficiently. And so it's a pleasure to have written those books and to have got them out. And as someone who's written a book, I know the time and energy that it takes to do so. So thank you on behalf from all your readers and your future readers of your books, because I know the commitment it takes. Thank you so much. We always finish our podcast with one piece of advice. So my question to you, Ruth, is what one piece of advice would you give to marketers of tomorrow? So I learned this when doing the Female Entrepreneurs book. I asked female entrepreneurs what advice they give people and they said, do not become an entrepreneur unless you want to become an entrepreneur because it's hard work. It's all about the journey. It's not about the end game. And when you're an entrepreneur, you will probably fail multiple times and have to pick yourself up. And if you don't want to put in that much effort, it's going to be hard work. So for me, my bigger piece of advice is you only have one life. So follow your passion, love what you do each day and enjoy the journey. And if that means needing to look at new things to try and find that passion, then I would certainly recommend to make the leap, try it and just find what you love. That's a great piece of advice. And thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you for tuning into the Whole Marketer podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do like, follow and share. The Whole Marketer is here to support and empower you and your teams with the latest technical skills, soft and leadership skills and behaviours and personal understanding for a successful, fulfilling marketing career and life as a whole. For support, resources and more information on how we can help you to become a Whole Marketer and build Whole Marketing teams, go to www.thewholemarketer.com.